bad waiter at a restaurant. You know, you get in there, you get seated, they kind of have a surly attitude, act like you're kind of the irritation to be there. You ask questions about the menu, they answer kind of a flat voice, kind of disinterested and let you know. They're distracted, you're never quite sure they hear you. They bring your food, they scratch their head and they bring your food, it's not a good thing. They never really come back to check on you, take care of you, fill, fill your drinks. Kind of a lousy experience. On the other hand, if a really good waiter, they can turn that meal into a memorable experience. You can have immediate engagement and welcome as if you and the party that you're with really matter to them. You ask questions about the specials or the menu, and they answer with such enthusiasm that you really think they're going to come and sit down and eat with you. And that, that they're so sure what the chef's going to prepare is going to be something delicious that you're going to enjoy and, and maintain focus, but they're not intrusive and they share, take care of your needs throughout the meal. Now, what relationship between the waiter and the guest shapes everything about the experience? Not to mention the tip. <laughs> And the review that you might write on Yelp and let folks know about that place. And the difference in the service is their attitude toward their serving, which is shaped by the waiters thinking about their role. Now, you and I deal with people who serve us all the time. Bank tellers, the checkout at the grocery, the guys raise your lawn, the registrar for classes at school, your, your personal sandwich artist at Subway... Uh, the nurse may give them a test, the cable guy. I mean, all kinds of ways. Lots of levels of our, of our economy are built on identifying needs and providing a service to fill it. And we've all experienced good service. We've experienced bad service. And many times the difference in the service is the attitude towards the serving, which is shaped by the person's mindset about their, their job. And now the one key part of every Christian's job or life calling is service to others. Even non-believers expect that. Disciples of Jesus serve others. So we've identified the rhythms of a disciple's life and the disciple's pathway. We said we're going we're gonna to worship. To be worshipers. We're going to connect and be family. We're going to serve others to be servants, equipped to be learners and multiply missionaries in the world. Right at the core is we're going to serve others. So God's purpose and God's design is that every one of His children have a, a part to play in His purpose in the world. And we need everybody's gifts and everybody's serving to fully accomplish what God has in store for us. And so that's what we're looking at across the summer through the series, uh, Serving is Better Together. Now sometimes that serving is within the church, within our programming, within our our ministries, but more often than not, it's with people where we live, work, and learn, and play. We identify the needs of people, and we serve them. So as we say every week, we're going to be people who who are going to uh, live hopeful and what? Be helpful. We're going to be helpful. Let's understand that being helpful is not simple and clean. It can be complicated and messy. Being helpful won't fit in a little block on your Google Calendar. It will spill over into other parts of, of life. Serving as a disciple is helping folks through the ordinary stuff of life. Moving, fixing broken stuff, 
watching the kids so they can have a date night, all those kind of normal things, part of helping. But it's also entering into our friends' joys or delights or interests as well as their pain, their questions, their stress with the goal of helping the people that we know to flourish relationally, socially, emotionally, intellectually, and above all, spiritually in their relation with the Lord because that's how God designed life to be. That's what we're working toward. Now, now even among disciples, however, that service may be good, it may be poor, and many times the difference in the serving is the disciples' attitude toward the serving, which is shaped by our mindset or thinking about that. And that's what we want to think about this morning a little bit, about our thinking about about serving. Now, this is a fairly consistent aspect of Jesus training his disciples. He's training men and women to radically love and adopt the same serving posture toward others as he had, but he had to capture their thinking, and that took a little bit longer time. So I want to kind of trace this. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the night before Jesus was crucified, he's with the disciples in the upper room, and you remember, he knelt and he washed their feet. And he said, now you go and serve each other in exactly the same way that I have served you. And that was the first time he brought that up. Several weeks before, James and John had asked a question of Jesus. We'd like to be Vice President, Secretary of State, when you begin your administration. And this led a little dust up with the disciples. So in that moment, Jesus said, I'll teach you something here. Here's what I teach you about my world. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That's what we're here to do, all right? And they, well, that may be the first time they heard that. Not so. Several weeks before that, another incident recorded in Mark chapter 9, which is where we're going to be this morning. If you go ahead and turn there in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. If you don't have a copy of the Bible with you, there's a black hardbound one there in front of you. I encourage you to turn that and follow along. Let me give you the setting. The disciples have confessed Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus says, okay, I'm going to... Be crucified. I'm gonna, gonna rise again. They experienced the transfiguration. They saw the glory of Jesus. They saw Jesus uh, heal a boy with a demonic spirit. And again, Jesus foretells what's going to happen. And then, as they're traveling, they come back to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was a seaside city. It was kind of like a hub for Jesus as he went through through Galilee. He didn't own a house, but he had a house there that he used as a home base. Maybe somebody in Peter's family, because that's where, where all the fishing businesses uh, were taken care of. And, and so they all gather there. And there's this one incident in Mark chapter 9. Alexis Hales is going to come and read God's Word for us. Would you stand in our reading of God's Word? We're going to be in Mark 9, beginning in verse 33. Let's hear the Word of the Lord. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. He sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone will be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Alexis. She may be seated. Now, what we see here is Jesus is shifting the disciples' mindset about what greatness is and about serving others. Now, now why begin here? 
why don't I start with the pragmatic stuff? You're going to help people. Here's the stuff you do to help people. Well, because there's this principle in the scripture, and it's this. What goes into the mind, grabs onto the heart, grows into a life. What goes into the mind, grabs onto the heart, grows into a life. So, Peter said this, and Paul said this in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If I can change your mind, if you think rightly, you'll begin to shape the way of your life. So, we're thinking about serving. We'll serve better when we think rightly, first of all, about our success. Our success. Now, Jesus asked this broken question of his disciples. What were you talking about on the way? Now, he knew, but he didn't want them to verbalize it. He wanted them to own it, what they had said. It says that they were silent. They didn't really want to own up to it because they knew what they'd been talking about. They argued about which one of them was the greatest. So they argued. So the discussion got a little bit, a little bit heated. So you got to ask, what were the categories? When, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest prayer? Who has the greatest potential as a healer? Who's going to be the greatest preacher? Who's the greatest poker player at Disciples Poker Night? I mean, who's the greatest of all the people? Maybe just general qualities of character, personality, potential, commitment. Who's the best guy? Who's most likely to succeed with Jesus? Now, what's the motive of that kind of conversation? We're trying to decide who's the greatest. The motive is to win. You want to win the competition and be seen as the greatest. Now, this is one of those moments when we realize how little people really have changed across the centuries. Because we're always drawn to consider what makes for a successful life. And we often do gauge our success in comparison to others. Nobody wants to be a failure. Nobody wants to be a loser, right? Everybody wants to be a success. So let me ask you a question. What qualities or standards are you using to define success in your life? Or, if you're thinking about that, you have gauges across the dashboard of your life that tell you this is what success is, what are the labels above those gauges that tell you what real success actually is? Because all of us have some measure by which we measure success or greatness in life. And more than we realize, those categories standards are shaped by the values of the world that we live in. So, it's some combination of, of a bunch of things that we hear a lot. Uh, money and financial security. Certain level of financial uh, capability or certain kind of possessions. A lot of what you're talking about is has to do with health, maintaining a certain physical appearance or a certain level of physical fitness. It's having a stable family and a marriage or something good, accomplishments or achievements in my, in my children. We talk about accomplishments in, in education or our career or a sense of influence or power or that we're independent, we can make our own decisions or happiness, however you define that. All those begin to weave in. But would you notice that all of those are largely self-defined? They're self-centered. If I just can have this, do this, uh, take care of that, achieve this, fill in whatever it is, then I'll be a success. This will be my best life right now if I can just do that. This is the water we swim in. This is our culture. This is what we hear all of the times what success is. Now, now why were the disciples silent about their discussion? Maybe they were embarrassed. 
But listen, they've been around Jesus for some time. My suspicion is that they knew the definition of greatness they were using didn't exactly match his. That their gauges were off just a little bit. Now, does Jesus give us any hint about how we define success in life? Well, his very first message that he ever gave says the kingdom of God has broken in. So there's a king who rules over everything. We're subjects to him. He has an agenda that we're to fulfill and get that done. That's a part of it. And then he comes to the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount about what a kingdom life looks like. And the constant rhythm of the Sermon on the Mount is this. You've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus says something different is going on when you think about living for the kingdom than the prevailing values of the world. Like what? Let's look at a few of these. What about in terms of ambition? The world says make much of yourself. The kingdom says make much of God. What about money? The world says get all you can. The kingdom says give all you can away. What about time? The world says it's all about right now. Seize the day. Carpe diem. The kingdom says there's an eternal perspective. There's a long view of things. What about in terms of conflict? The world says when you have pain, you punch back harder and, and you conquer. And the kingdom says, no, you forgive and you reconcile. About how we speak. The world says, spend whatever words you use to reality to manage your image and manage the situation. And the kingdom says, so you speak truth and love to build other people up. What about power? The world says, control others, use your power to control others for your good. And the kingdom says, you use your power to serve others for their good. Now, I want you to see this. What the kingdom of God says, it turns the values of the world upside down. So if I'm living in the kingdom as the disciple of Jesus, I'm following him, the defining motive of my life is flipped. Rather than winning in life now gives way to honoring God for the things that last forever. Competition with others gives way to compassion for others. It begins to change things, which is why when Jesus was asked to define the bottom line of God's kingdom, he boiled it all down to one word. Right? What's the great commandment? Here's what he said. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, vertically this way. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself as you go about. He said it all boils down to love. So, success in life, according to the kingdom, is this. It's loving hard, loving well, loving long. Love hard, love well, love long. Love God, love others. A great life is one that radically loves others for Jesus' sake. So here's, in our thinking, here's what kingdom living does. Kingdom living looks up first and takes cues from God's way for the world. That's what success means. I think kingdom first and then begin to order my life by what he has said and what he has revealed. So we serve better when we think rightly about our success, but then also about ourselves. About ourselves. Because Jesus immediately puts the spotlight, so he sits down, calls the disciples to himself, and he said, if anyone would be first, greatest, he must be last of all, and servant of all. I want you to hear what he says. If you're going to be great, if you're last of all, and servant of all. Now, 
they've heard something like this before. When Jesus first called them to himself, in Luke 9, he says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He says that the basic rhythm of a disciple's life, deny himself, meaning I, I, I intentionally choose not to put myself at the front of the line. Take up your cross daily. I'm going to order my life. I'm going to embrace the mission of God and follow Jesus wherever that takes me. Wherever that takes me, I'm not going to put myself in the front of the line. Last of all, certain of all, I'm going to take up my cross. I'm going to embrace His mission with the people around me. Now, what this is is a matter of our identity. How we, how I think about me. If I'm a disciple, how do you think about you if you're a disciple? Now, these categories can be viewed either negatively or positively. If I focus on last and servant, they might be seen negatively. Be last of all. I mean, every American bone in our body fights against that. We don't like to be last. We like to win. We want to come out on top of everything. Be servant of all. Really? I don't want to be a doormat to somebody. I don't, I don't want to have to do that, that sort of thing. And we can think of it negatively, but what if we focus on the all? Be last of all, servant of all. Now I'm just changing my focus based on Jesus' call in my life. Oh, everyone be last of all. Oh, so I choose to put others in front of me. Be servant of all. Oh, so I choose to notice and address and serve others very similar in Philippians chapter 2 describing Jesus. Look what he said. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not kind of call to God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now, now watch this. I want you to think the way he's saying. Think, have this mind in yourself, which is in Christ Jesus. So I want to think about myself the same way Jesus Christ thought about himself. How did he think about himself as a servant? He said this several times. I'm thinking of myself as a servant. So if my identity, if I say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a disciple of, of Jesus, if I think about myself as a servant who loves others, then I will tune into what's in the best interest of others. What does this kind of attitude do? This humbles me. It tames my pride, my insistent self-centeredness, my self-centeredness. kind of is always there all the time. I have to deal with that on a regular basis. But then I begin to value others when I see them the way Jesus sees them. I see others at soul level not by their vocation or their gender or their body type or their economics or their success or their power or their cool factor. No, I begin to see others, oh, that's the soul for whom Jesus died and whom God loves with an everlasting love. I see them that way. 
and they begin to know them, begin to know their needs and their longings and their wounds and their joys and their seeds of life. And as I walk through my life, wherever I am, in my workplace, in my neighborhood, with the friendships that I have, the people that I've known, I begin to understand that in the eyes of Jesus and as what He has purposed for them, every life matters. And if you hear that as a political statement, you completely miss the point. Every life matters because of the way Jesus sees them and what He has done. So to consider myself as a servant of all is to instantly deepen the meaning of my life. It changes the way I relate to the world. So I can relate to it one two ways. I can say, because of who I am, you owe me. And I walk on this grass. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Give me more, give me more, give me more. Or, if I take this viewpoint, Jesus says, because of who you are, I love you. I'll walk through the generosity. I'll give you. I'll give you. I'll give you. Whatever I have, I move from give me to I give you. The generosity of time and possession. So you see, I begin to say, if I'm going to serve, I need to think rightly about success in the world, the kingdom, about myself. I'm a servant. But then about my service, about what I'm actually doing. Now, if Jesus presses home, this mindset of servant with a very simple illustration. This is in verse 36, that, that he, he took a child and, and put him in the midst of them and taken him in his arms. This is a very small child. Maybe not an infant, but a toddler. He's just beginning to talk. And then in verse 37, he says, Whoever uh, desires or receives one such child of my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. I use that word receives four times. So when he says receives, think about it. It's welcomes. It's he opens his arms. What you do with a child, right? You open their arms so they can run in. So, so I receive them to myself. And this begins, looks like receiving a child. Now, let's think about this for a second. At least a third of these disciples are fishermen. Big guys, strong hands, thick fingers. They chop stuff with knives. They toss nets. We know about Peter, right? He's impulsive. He's kind of full of China shot guy. James and John, Jesus called them the sons of thunder. These aren't the guys you have on speed dial to watch the kids on Friday night, you know? You don't do that. These are not guys that spend a lot of time around children. That culture, men would not have had a lot of interaction with children at all. And Jesus says, receive these children. Now, let's understand this. Receiving a child requires accommodating to them, right? Adults can be overwhelming and intimidating to children. So what do you do when you relate to children? With your voice, to talk a little bit softer. With your vocabulary, you have to use smaller words. With your posture, you come at you get down on eye level, right? And you, you look at them. You accommodate your power so you throw a ball a little bit softer. Or you don't try quite so hard to win the game. You accommodate your imagination because you can't do a tea party with Princess Elsa or be iron if you won't do the whole imagination You do whatever it takes, whatever it takes, to get on the level so you can know, love, help, and 
that child down. That's a lesson. We don't only deal with children, right? We deal with all kinds of people. So no matter where the world places you, we're probably going to have to accommodate to the people around us. What does that look like? You got to listen more than I get opinion. Means I open my life in a way that may not be convenient. I sacrifice my agenda to, to their need. I adjust the language that I use in talking about life or about about the gospel. Serving requires that we do whatever is necessary to enter their world to, to know, love, and help that person for Jesus for Jesus' sake to help them. Now remember, thinking differently, press on the idea that serving is about the other. Persons, their need first. It's the avenue to their heart. It's the, the gateway for the gospel. Many times is serving people in their need. And in the middle of that, Jesus, as you do that, as you welcome and love and accommodate and serve, did you pick up the promise you made? You receive them. You receive me. Not just me, but the one who sent me. He said, you encounter Jesus in a fresh way. Now, he said it's sort of the same thing in other contexts. Some at the very end of time, he said, when we're kind of making an evaluation of your life at the end, look what he said, Matthew 25. The righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When do we see you a stranger and walk in your naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick and in prison busy you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. As you served, you received me. You received me. Sometimes Jesus shows up in the skin of the people he sends us to serve. He's right there. Now there's a double blessing here. You serve and bless others what Jesus is giving you, you give more of Jesus, which means you have more to share. So watch this. Intimacy with Jesus leads to more delight in the gospel and in the promises of who Jesus is, which then overflows in willing and sacrificial service of others by the gospel itself, which then blesses and helps others with the gospel so they flourish in life. And that moment enables us to have more intimacy with Jesus and more delight in the gospel of his promises, which overflows in willing sacrificial service to other people, which blesses them and enables them to flourish, which enables us to have more intimacy with Jesus. You see how that works? We begin to build that over and over again. We begin to see all that we are the waiters to the world. We want to be good waiters. We will come along in a Christian's best serving arise from our attitude toward our serving, which is shaped by our mindset or our thinking about our calling and our assignment in the world. So we serve better when we think rightly about our success. It's a matter of living kingdom values of love. We think rightly about, about ourselves. Our identity is as servants giving ourselves away. And about our serving, we're, we're accommodating ourselves to others and we're enjoying intimacy with Jesus. We think rightly shape our living. I'll leave you with a picture in his book Mortal Lessons, Notes on the Art of Surgery. Dr. Richard Seltzer writes this. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, 
her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscle of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut that little nerve. Her husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seek to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they? I ask myself. He and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at and touch each other so generously, greedily. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? Yes, I say, it will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. I think it's kind of cute. And all at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. It was not bold in an encounter with the God. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I am so close I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. We have a Savior who came to serve us in our brokenness. As our Savior, he came to enter into the wound to bring us healing so our sin and our death could be taken away. And as the lover of our souls, he bent low to kiss us so we would know that we're always his and nothing will separate us from his love. And then he sends us out into a broken, dying, hurting world to serve them all with his strength and mercy and hope to accommodate ourselves to meet them in their brokenness so we can we can tell them, we can show them about the kiss of a king that will change them for now and forever. This is our call. This is our So perhaps you're here today and you have never yet been healed of your sin wound by a Savior. Maybe this is a good time. Maybe this is your time to run to Him and come that you trust that when He died on the cross and rose again, it was to bring you life and rescue you from death. So the moment as we sing, we invite you to come and be and express that trust in Him. Maybe you have already trusted Him. When you think about your own life and the sphere of the people that you deal with and the needs all around you, maybe some that you've been kind of skipping over, but that this morning by the Spirit, He's brought that to your mind and to your heart. 
So I need a moment you want to come and kneel and pray and say, Lord, help me open my arms in welcome and service to the broken ones I need. And help me think about them and think about myself as you have designed for me. So you too may want to come and pray. Lord, we pray in these moments we be reminded again of how awesome your invitation is, how gracious you are to give that to us and open your arms to us so we can open our arms to others and invite them to come just as they are, to come know your love, your healing, and your grace. Help us in these moments to respond as you're pumping by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You come as we worship together.